The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit tweeting your bowel movements and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 387 with guest Rocky Lodka, recorded live Tuesday, September 30th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who says beauty is in the eye of the beer holder, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard back on the ground, safe and sound. How are you doing, Richard? I am well, sir. And here we are for your listening pleasure. So this is the first time we've got to talk to you about why you weren't in Amsterdam. Oh, yes. I, I missed the whole European tour. I had to uh, to stay put. You know, with the financial crisis uh, impacts a lot of things, including Strange Loop, And it was uh, necessary for me to stay behind and hunker down and, and sort things out. So it was a uh, it was a tough couple of weeks. I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but we did what we had to do. And things are good. Well, we just are glad that it wasn't a health problem. I mean, there's yeah, a bunch of I'm people. Yeah, I'm sorry are, for folks I left hanging there where, you know, in the middle of it, you, you really can't talk much. I just said, I got a crisis at home. I'm sorry I can't come. And, and I went to work. Oh, it's good to, uh, it's good to be back. And you are going to Barcelona and you're going to the PDC and Dev Connection. So, right? Absolutely. Uh, uh, so, heck, PDC's next week. Next week. I know. It's in crazy. fact, I got an email from John Bristow. Former RD, now crossed over to the dark side. That's right, yeah. Saying that apparently the Canadians are going nuts at PDC, and they put up a website, www.canucksatpdc.com. And how does one spell Canuck? Spell that for us, Richard. <laughs> I'm sure you could figure it out. <laughs> Canucksatpdc.com. And uh, that's the site where if you're a Canadian, you're going to PDC, you want to visit there. And uh, cool. take a look at the insanity that these guys are up to here. And, of course, uh, Richard and I will be probably Twittering where we're hanging out at the PDC. Absolutely. You could probably catch us at the regional director's booth occasionally and uh, milling about, getting into trouble, no doubt. Uh, PDC is so much fun because it's, it's, it's that one week where you get to think about what's next Yeah, for the whole week. Yep. All right. Let's get right into Better Know Framework. <laughs> All right, man. What do you got? What I have for you is really, really wonderful. It is system.data.link.dataloadoptions. Oh. And this is a way to get around the lazy loading when you have sort of a, a query that has a relationship in it. And instead of having to go uh, run 50 or so subqueries for every record that comes back, you can just do it all in one shot. Right. So it's a great way to do some pre-fetching, and uh, it's just uh, it's just great stuff. It just sort of works. You assign a data load options to a data context, and uh, just use it, know it, love it. It works. Blog awesome. it. 
It's a good way to improve performance in Link to SQL. So you have an email for us? Absolutely. I got a quick one for you. Okay. Uh, a little old, but but relevant. Uh, leads off. Carl and Richard, I was listening to show 382. That's the Sox show on the way into work this morning. The first thing that caught my attention was during the leadoff banter when Richard was talking about remote-controlled toilet seats. Oh, boy. All I could think of was bad toy. Bad toy. (laughs) (laughs) Have I communicated the whole idea that having electricity plugged into your toilet seat is just a bad idea? It's a bad idea. Okay, but let's let that go. Okay, now that I have that off my chest... The wife really wants one of those, does she? Oh, yeah. And what's even funnier is the general contractor's wife has seen what she's ordering and now... She wants one, too. Oh, good Lord. It's spreading. It is spreading. You guys keep that crap up north, all right? <laughs> Don't export that junk over here. It's it's Japanese. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. Like sushi keys. There you go. Sushi USB keys. Sushi, yeah. Tempura USB keys. Tempura Same shrimp thing. USB key. Oh. I want a big shrimp flying out of the side of my Stick laptop. Stick it out of your computer. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's great. Uh, also, the same guys who brought you the humping dog USB key. <laughs> but we digress. We digress. Let me finish this email. <laughs> I would like to say that the Sox show was very timely for me. I work as a consultant and as such get to work in just about every role imaginable. The last few weeks have been spent working with an internal audit and compliance team. And you guessed it, Sox Compliance. While some people may not see the connection between .NET development and SOX issues, I'm glad to see you covering this topic. Thanks for interviewing people who can help us understand these non-technical issues, which most definitely affect our software projects. Sincerely, Tim Murphy. Richard, you know what today is, right? What's today? It's October 21st. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're doing today, right? I Do I? Yeah, you do. We are announcing the winner... Of the .NET Rocks Barcelona TechEd Europe contest, whatever the hell we're calling it. The winner who gets to go to Barcelona this year or next year. uh, You have a choice. Yeah. A three expense paid trip. I think I've figured out how to say this now. We're paying your airfare. We're paying your hotel bill and we'll get you into the conference. And it's in, did we mention where it is? It's in Barcelona, Spain. Hello. So, one of the best places in the world you can possibly go, hours of fun. And if you don't go this year, next year it's in Berlin. Aha. This is the first time we mentioned that, is it? Uh, no, Isn't it's it? been out in a while for a while. Has it? Okay. Uh, so, but before we announce the grand prize winner, we have to announce the weekly winner for this right. week. And the question for this week was, what did Carl ask Rob Tiffany uh, on the Windows Mobile show recently about the next version of uh, Windows Mobile? And the answer was, should Apple be scared? And by the way, Rob Tiffany's answer was, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and the winner of this week's uh, brain bag is Kirk Sandman. Kirk Sandman from Tilden, Nebraska. Welcome. Congratulations, Kirk. You are the winner of a Tom Bin brain bag, the best bag in the world for hauling your laptop. Absolutely. Yep. So we will send that right out to you and put you in the drawing. Right in front of me, I have a randomizer computer program that I, whose button I will push now, and it will pick one of the six weekly winners to go to Barcelona. Ready? Drum roll, please. And the winner is Kenneth Dason from Marion, Ohio. Congratulations. If I remember correctly, uh, the first year we did this, which was two years ago, um, the winner was Johan Sustrom, and I believe he was from from Finland or Sweden, I think. So anyway, this year, a, a United Statesman gets to go. That's uh, quite a trip across the pond there, Kenneth, and uh, we'll be contacting you shortly, probably before this airs, about your prize. I'd like to thank everybody who participated in the .NET Rocks sweepstakes for uh, Tech Ed Barcelona 2008. And uh, we'll see you at the PDC, of course. And we'll try to do the same thing again next year. It's a pretty good contest, don't you think? I have a good time doing it. Well, not that I was participating all that much this year. Because yeah. I always seemed to be away when it was going on. Yeah. But, hey, great contest. Yeah. 
And uh, I can't wait for Barcelona. So, of course, uh, the people down in Manhattan at Infusion, those crazy people down there, are still looking for talented .NET developers to join their team doing SharePoint, doing WPF, doing Silverlight, doing uh, Surface uh, development. Uh, they're looking for people to come to New York for a year. They will move you out here. They will put you up in an apartment and pay your rent for a year. Also, they're looking for people to go to Dubai. That's right. I said Dubai. So if you really want an adventure, uh, send me an email, carl at franklins.net, and I will hook you up with the right people. Richard, our guest today is Rocky Latka. He's been on the show many, 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 many times, probably one of our one of our very first guests. He was in the first 10, that's for sure, maybe eight, show number eight, Rocky, something like that. Yeah, right at the very beginning. He uh, he and Billy Hollis wrote the very first book on uh, .NET. Uh, which well, was... I don't know about .NET, but certainly on Visual Basic for .NET. Right. Okay. Well, it was it was really one of the first books that covered uh, .NET for programmers in in a in any kind of comprehensive form, though. And uh, he's also, of course, the author of the of many books, including um, which include the CSLA.net framework. And of course, before that, he was uh, you know, very popular writing books for VB6 and VB5, and even VB4. Uh, today, Rocky, you're going to be talking about your experiences with Silverlight. You've uh, got something to announce, huh? Well, it's true. Uh, we just released the uh, first beta, so beta 1, of CSLA.net for Silverlight. And uh, along with that comes a new version of CSLA.net for Windows uh, that we call uh, 3.6 is the, the version number on this. So it's kind of a big deal. That means that you must have... Uh, we haven't really talked about you and Silverlight. We've talked about you and WPF before. But this was your first foray into Silverlight, wasn't it? That's true. Yep. Um, I, I really like WPF I, I, and uh, put a lot of work into the CSLA version of uh, you know, 3.5 and, and 3.0 to try and make WPF very productive. And uh, part of the reason I like, really like WPF so much is that it, uh, using XAML and, and some custom controls radically reduces the amount of code that you need behind each form or beside each form, however you want to look at it, uh, basically reduces the UI code and uh, consolidates your business behaviors all into a set of uh, business objects in, in a formal business layer. I'm all over that. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, so then, you know, Microsoft, what, a year ago, started talking about Silverlight and, and had Silverlight 1.1. And so I started looking at that. You know, it's it's touted as a, a subset of WPF. And, at, you know, a year ago, it was a serious subset. <laughs> you know, I, I was looking at, at uh, that version of Silverlight thinking, gee, you know, how, mu how much, if any, of CSLA will actually work in this new world? That was Silverlight 1.0 you're talking about. Uh, well, 1.1, really. Kind of that, that was because... 1.0 uh, lets you program some JavaScript, but it's really a, a media player right. more than anything. And then they had that 1.1, which was kind of like, here's Silverlight that's going to let you do .NET, but it was very much of a preview. Mm. And then early this year, they came out with um, early builds of CSLA 2.0, and... Uh, and then, of course, beta 1 and beta 2. And the difference between 1.1... You mean Silverlight, and, not CSLA. Yeah, this is Silverlight. Yeah. The difference between Silverlight 1.1 and the 2.0 builds is dramatic. What we actually are getting in Silverlight 2.0 is just amazing. Uh, it's, it's a large part of... The, of .NET, of, of what we commonly use to build business software, it fits in 4.7 megabytes. <laughs> wow. And, and I always thought that 
2.0 was just a renaming of 1.1, that they recognized that 1.1 was really a change of direction, so it should be a separate version number. Well, I, I think that's part of it, certainly, right? The, there's a marketing aspect to it where they, you know, renamed it, and, and I think that was smart. But you can't underestimate, I think, the difference in features between that very early uh, preview from a year ago and what we're getting now. Yeah. And I, I've talked to people that looked at that preview and kind of dismissed Silverlight. You know, and they're like, yeah, you know, it's too small, too limited, too cramped. And um, if they, you know, if you're one of those people and you haven't looked at Silverlight recently, <laughs> you really need to look at it again. How was the programming? What was the programming experience like? Well, it's been an adventure um, on a couple different fronts. This uh, partially technology uh, and partially because this is the first time that I've had a an entire development team working on CSLA. Uh, Magenic uh, gave me some resources over the past, what, three months or so. And so I've had uh, between two and five people uh, building CSLA 3.6. Wow. And so that, that by itself has had its own, uh, you know, uh, but it's been fun. I, I can't, couldn't have asked for a better group of people. But it certainly was an adjustment for me because I've been doing this all by myself, you know, for a long time. Why did they do that, Rocky? Well, I think that um, CSLA has definitely uh, helped Magenic over the years. Um, the fact that I work for Magenic and that Magenic is essentially um, a sponsor or patron for CSLA uh, ultimately lends to Magenic's business. Right. You know, if, you, if you're going to go find somebody to help you uh, consult on CSLA, probably you're going to want to go find talk to the company that employs the guy that wrote it. Right. And Silverlight, um, I guess myself and Magenic's um, management, we're all convinced that Silverlight is uh, a pivotal technology. And that, and that was picks up another question about it, which is like why Silverlight of all these things? You really think it's that big of a deal? I really do, and and uh, and so does you know obviously Magenic's uh, owners do too. They they committed some pretty substantial resources to making sure that we've got a quality framework for it. Uh, and and the reason I think it's such a big deal comes back to the fact that it really includes most of the functionality, maybe all the functionality, that uh, most of us use to build business software. And so, and, and yet it has a web-based deployment model, essentially just like, you know, Flash or, or whatever else. Once your users have installed the Silverlight plugin, um, everything else just works. Well, makes you wonder what the other 50 megabytes of the framework are doing. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a lot of it is Windows specific, though. A lot of the framework is. You got all that enterprise service stuff, and all you yeah, know. That's absolutely true. There's and, no and WCF stack, for example, is there? Ah, uh, yes, there is. Absolutely. Really? WCF is the primary technology for talking to the server. Get out of town! It's it's a subset of it but it's a, a meaningful subset that does a lot of what you need, well, everything I needed to do to build CSLA. Wow, that's great. So, you know, I mean, just to put this in perspective, when I first started scoping this out, you know, what, uh, 10 or 12 months ago, I really expected to create a, a subset of CSLA. And, in fact, I, I started calling it CSLA Lite because I thought it was going to be like a small version, right? As it turns out, um, every bit of CSLA that's required to build client application uh, software fit, works. It's in, it's in the CSLA for Silverlight. And the only parts that aren't um, in the CSLA for Silverlight are Windows Forms specific or Web Forms or uh, WPF. Uh, or data access, because there is no data access on the client in a Silverlight app. Sure. Makes sense. 
but all of the parts necessary to support uh, you know, data binding, validation, authorization, authentication, um, undo concepts, you know, so you can easily do a cancel button, uh, the data portal for client server, and uh, also a local data portal for doing service-oriented architectures, all these things that were originally part of CSLA are now also uh, exactly the same in CSLA for Silverlight. So what That's it means great. is that if, if you know how to write CSLA objects you know, for Windows Forms or Web Forms or whatever, it, it's the same programming model. Um, well, okay, so I say that. Um, it turns out that there are some differences. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the, because of the Silverlight, uh, the way the Silverlight runtime works, uh, what we did, though, and I'll, I can get into some specifics here, but what we ended up doing, one of my goals was to have compatibility between the .NET and Silverlight side, especially as I saw just how much of .NET works inside of Silverlight. And so we ended up uh, backporting um, or converting a bunch of Silverlight features into the .NET side to have compatibility. Uh, probably the most notable thing and, and this is a, a real pervasive deal for anybody doing Silverlight. All server communication from a Silverlight app is asynchronous. Wow. Well, it sort of has to be to work in the browser, right? Well, yeah, it's primarily because the primary thread running your Silverlight code is, in fact, the browser thread. And so if you block that thread, then you block the whole browser. Yeah. And that's bad. That would be bad. Definitely. <laughs> I think that would cause frustration for users. So, uh, so when you add a, um, like a, a proxy to a service, the um, you know, add service reference in Visual Studio, it generates a proxy that only has asynchronous methods. Whereas if you do this in .NET, you get synchronous methods, right? Right. And th this is such a huge shift because most developers, uh, myself included, uh, don't really stop and, I mean, we, we just make synchronous calls. And as soon as you're uh, forced to do asynchronous calls, right, that just it's like a ripple effect because uh, you have to learn the pattern Right. Yeah, where, where you create the proxy, you hook the callback event, yep, and you make the call, and then in the callback handler, that's where you do the work, you know, to process whatever you got back, and you say, okay, well, I can wrap my head around that. You know, after you do that two or three times, it becomes pretty calm, second nature. Right. But then you start to realize that um, when the user clicks a save button and you make one of these asynchronous calls, the UI is still active. And so then do you really want to let the user interact with... Yeah, the user can click on something else now. Yeah, and, and they could edit the information some more and click save a second time while the first save is still running. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, do you really want to let that happen? And so, so it ripples up into the UI. Um, you know, so you have to do things there. But then in CSLA, um, there's a formalized support for uh, validation rules. And sometimes people have a validation rule that talks to the database. It does a table lookup or something. Right. Well, so validation rules have always been a synchronous behavior. When the user tabs off a field, the rules run, and you find out if the, you know, the, the value was any good or not. But if data access or, or talking to the server is now always asynchronous, certain validation rules also become asynchronous, <laughs> which you know, is even weirder. So, so yeah, now you're starting dealing with the idea that a guy could be tabbing through a page, and sometime later you're going to mark up that's wrong. You know, you know, flag it as as a failed rule. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what we chose to do. I don't, I don't see that as inherently bad either. No, it's actually, visually, it's kind of cool because we built a, um, a busy animation uh, control, and then uh, that's automatically 
linked into the status of the business object as to whether it's running an async process. Right. If you build this with, and you have a lot of asynchronous rules, you, you can get this really neat effect where you uh, enter like five or six fields into text boxes and, uh, you know, and you've got five or six of them with a little spinny animation running indicating that they're all doing an async thing. And are they each on a separate thread at that point? Um, essentially, so probably using yes. the pool, the thread pool. So yeah, they would be. Yeah, they, they essentially each have an outstanding server request at that point. But and are they going into the? I mean, I'm just thinking the browser. If we're talking about IE seven anyway, well, normally on a given web page, only hold two uh, TCP/IP connections to the web server. So are they just sharing that connection and sending their request separately, or are they actually spinning up a separate connection individually? I imagine, Richard, because they're using the standard thread pool that comes with the framework, right, that uh, when you do an asynchronous request, it probably works just like the .NET framework does, right, Rocky, where it just pulls a thread from the pool, spins it up? Uh, certainly your coding experience is that, and, and there is a thread pool, and the thread pool is what's being used. So, so yes, that's all true. Um, but you're living but in the browser. You are also living in the browser, and so there are some side effects, uh, certainly, to server communication because of that. And, and I honestly don't know the specifics if you are limited to the browser's two connections. Uh, I, I do know that the WCF stack is separate from the browser network stack. So in theory, they wouldn't be bound by that limitation, which is interesting because that brings up its own set of issues uh, when you talk about the way that web servers behave. You know, lot, a lot of stuff is pretty hard-coded to, I only get so many connections from a given browser. So if we can break that, I, I just wonder if we're going to run into some issues the way that the app's going to behave. You, know, you spin up six or eight of those things because you're hammering through there, there are firewalls out there. We we'll call that a, a, a denial of service attack. That's true, and and like I say, I don't know the specifics of um, what kind of limitations are built into this thing. I, I do know that during the beta two phase, there was um, at least one bug in the WCF stack that forced us to end up um, changing the CSLA data portal to. Uh, so that it queues up requests and only runs one at a time because multiple overlapping requests to the same server in certain browsers would cause uh, erroneous errors. And from what we can tell, that's been fixed in uh, RC0. Cool. Uh, we're still working with uh, Microsoft to try and establish for sure that it's been fixed, but um, that was certainly... That was a, an unfortunate and unforeseen thing because we had all these cool tests that did, in fact, a whole bunch of overlapping parallel calls, and that by itself is just kind of fun. Um, <laughs> but we were, uh, uh, especially in our unit testing, there's a lot of that stuff, and but we were getting random uh, test failures. You know, sometimes they'd work, sometimes they wouldn't. Which ones failed was entirely random, and it turned out to be. Uh, because of this underlying uh, issue. But again, from what we can tell, that's been resolved in the release candidate. Yeah, that's very debug resistant, too. You yeah. make yourself crazy trying to track that stuff down. Exactly. Uh, also, what, it'd be interesting to see what the IIS logs look like in under scenario like that, with all of those things coming in at once. Yeah, it's and we haven't really, at least I haven't had time to dig into the server-side um, logs on that and, and really pay a lot of attention um, we've been you know, trying to minimize. Uh, ultimately, we're using a, an XML serializer. Right. Um, the, oh, oh, so this was one of our bigger challenges, as it turns out. Um, there is a subset of WCF, and it's a decent subset. And then it also includes a subset of the data contract serializer, which is the uh, WCF XML serializer. But it doesn't do the same things as the net data contract serializer or the binary formatter. And those are the two that work for CSLA. <laughs> so we ended up writing our own um, serializer. Um, that Yikes. Sits, yeah, it was a challenging, uh, that was probably the hardest chunk yeah. of code that we had to write. 
And um, ultimately, it does use the data contract serializer to create the XML, but it does a lot more, uh, and it simulates most of the binary formatter behaviors. Rocky, did, did you actually, were you able to leverage your UI code as well? Uh, you from WPF, you mean? Yes. Well, parts of it, absolutely, because the data binding support in Silverlight is the same uh, basic set of interfaces as you'd find in WPF or Windows Forms. And, you know, so property changed, i-editable object, uh, a lot of the interfaces that, that you uh, would encounter working in a WPF world just are the, exactly the same uh, in Silverlight. But there weren't any problems converting the XAML or whatever? There was no problem rendering the forms or the dialogues? Well, I guess if, from a pure XAML perspective, there are substantial differences. Uh, early on, Microsoft was saying that Silverlight would be a subset, you know, the Silverlight XAML would be a subset of the WPF XAML. And while they are very similar, it turns out that um, they're... Uh, I don't remember all the right terms for set math, but I think uh, they're a union. Uh, Silverlight has features that WPF does not. WPF has features that Silverlight does not. And then there's a whole set of features that are common. Wow. What would be in Silverlight that wouldn't be WPF? Uh, the Visual State Manager is probably the big one. They invented a new way of doing uh, styling, basically. Uh, of allowing you to create controls or UI elements that uh, change their display based on, uh, well, being in a different state. And I, I think in a lot of ways it's a more elegant model uh, or a more approachable model than the original WPF uh, techniques for styling. And so, for instance, w w one of the things that's not in Silverlight is any good support, well, any support for iData error info, which is the primary validation interface for Windows or WPF. And so we ended up creating our own control that we called property status that, among other things, does what the, uh, kind of like the Windows Forms error provider control. And that control then uses the Visual State Manager to so that it says, oh, you know, when the object is valid, go into this state and, and essentially disappear. When the object is invalid, then go into a different state to show an error icon with a tooltip. And, uh, in fact, it does other things. That's also the control that shows the busy status. So it says, you know, if the property is running an async uh, validation rule, then switch into yet another state that shows the busy animation. And so this Visual State Manager, uh, there's a bit of a learning curve, but it's very, very cool. Uh, but it's a feature that's in Silverlight and not WPF, at least not yet. I, I kind of hope they you know, put it into WPF because it's a, a great idea. I want to just take a minute to uh, bring you a message from our sponsor, Telerik. Our friends at Telerik are working hard as usual to bring you exciting new stuff for your .NET toolbox. How about two brand new control suites? RAD controls for WPF and RAD controls for Silverlight. That's right. If you started building next generation applications, you now have UI components with Telerik quality and Telerik reliability. Both product lines are derived from the same code base and share the same API, so transition is seamless. Uh, they have many improvements in the other robust suites for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Windows Forms also, as well as the intuitive reporting tool. But product alone isn't everything. To jumpstart your projects and help you easily get up to speed with these great tools, Telerik has got a couple of unique training resources, the Telerik Interactive Trainer and Telerik TV, of course, which I'm the host of. Now, that's what I call summer heat. Go check out all the details at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com. And if you happen to run into those guys, say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. It's funny what's in and what's out, right? I mean, it seems like there are obvious things that ought to be there. Is there other big chunks or pieces that you really thought, why isn't this in Silverlight? Well, probably the biggest one that 
we ran into, I, I, I'll, I'll actually pick two because we directly had to overcome two features that are, are missing. One is that the WPF data provider model doesn't exist in Silverlight. And not everybody uses that. This is used for data binding. You're right, because there aren't really data sources. Well, yeah, the data provider um, is a XAML-based way of getting a, a data object and binding it to your UI so that you don't have to write necessarily write code behind the page to load the object and bind it. And in Silverlight, the only way to get um, something bound to the UI is to write code behind that goes and gets your you know, your object and then binds it to the XAML. And so we wrote our own data provider control. Uh, so are in, you saying there's object binding and that's it? Uh, well, yeah, and that's true in WPF as well. Um, but since everything's an object, right, you go get some XML. Okay, I guess I guess what I mean by that is the there's only the the so there is, so what you said before is true. There isn't a provider model, so you can't write your own provider. Well, you, we did <laughs> write our own provider, but, but you can't we implement were, an existing interface. That that's right. Yeah, and um, and so the binding expression that you end up using to connect to our data provider is slightly different than the one that you would use in WPF, but it's a pretty minor difference. And the end result is that you, using the data provider that we created, you don't have to write any code uh, behind a page, uh, at least not necessarily, to create an object and get it connected to your um, text boxes and combo boxes and so forth. So that was one area. And then the other area is um, one of the a popular feature of WPF is something called commanding. And commanding allows you to, uh, for instance, set up a, uh, uh, a menu item that does a, an edit copy or an edit cut or an edit paste. And rather than having to write code to implement that, uh, you just have the menu item send a command, such as cut, copy, or paste. And the command um, acts on the current control. And uh, I used commanding in WPF with CSLA so that you can implement, for instance, a save button and have when the save button is clicked, instead of having to write a click handler, you just have the save button send a save command to the data provider and the data provider saves the object. So you can implement a save button, a cancel button, an add new button, and a remove item button. All those buttons with zero lines of code. Great. You just send a command to the data provider, which is really cool. But in Silverlight, there's no commanding. And so uh, on the Silverlight side, we ended up uh, creating something that we call invoke method, uh, which basically we simulate um, at least the parts of commanding that we care about which I think is important because I really, again, I'm I'm all about trying to eliminate code in the UI and, you know, commanding or the ability in XAML to just wire up a button so that, you know, when you click it, it executes something like a save or a cancel or whatever. I think that's a really important thing. How, um, How long did it take to do the conversion and how many people worked on it? How many, how many man hours? Uh, well, I think we've been working on it about three months. During that time, I had two developers, um, although one of them started a little bit later. So, yeah, but still, you know, that's roughly close to six man months just in developer time. And then I had um, two testers for a while, and then we dropped back to one tester, and then I had a graphic designer for a short time. And so, you know, in total, probably... Um, so you say six, seven, eight, probably nine, nine or ten man months went into this. Thing. Wow, wow, that's a lot of work for a point one rev. Well, you know, the thing is that it's um, we had to port everything into Silverlight and then do a lot of research around you know how Silverlight was different and and how to take advantage of Silverlight's features and work around its quirks. Right. But then a lot of these features. 
such as the asynchronous data portal, the asynchronous validation rules, um, some of the uh, new support for, uh, uh, for instance, uh, talking to the membership provider for uh, authentication. A lot of these things we ended up building into CSLA on the .NET side as well. And so CSLA 3.6 is a a big deal. It probably probably should have been called 4.0, but then that would be confusing when .NET 4.0 comes out. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, but then again, you know, Microsoft did the same thing because, you know, they got .NET 3.5. But you're being forced... You're being forced to do bad rev numbering because because of Microsoft. Microsoft. 3.5 SP1. Well, 3.5 SP1 should have been uh, probably 3.6 on on Microsoft's side. I mean, Service Pack 1 for .NET, that's a big deal, too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, They added some major new stuff, and so you could argue um, that it's not just a Service Pack. It should have been called... You know, some yeah, some bigger version number. I remember know? when service packs were for bug fixes. <laughs> Not anymore. So, yeah, so it is. I, I agree. It's the version number stuff is a little bit uh, confusing, and and uh, but I, you know, I, I feel kind of stuck because I really can't call it four zero because then, you know, when .NET four zero comes out, it, it really would become very confusing. So. I just got to do what I got to do. You know, yeah, keep the number the number straight. So, and, and I love the fact that the you know the stuff you built it for the Silverlight, uh, some of the stuff you came up with in the Silverlight ended up going back to the original uh, version of CSLA. But I now you know you're now sort of running out of numbers. Like, are you stuck until 4.0 shows up? Like, what are you going to do next? Well, I anticipate the next big thing that I'll. Uh, need to support is the uh, ASP.NET MVC framework. And uh, I, I've been working with that already, and, and so have a couple other people I know. And you know, it works as is. In fact, it works really, really nicely to use uh, CSLA objects as the model in the MVC part of the thing. And But... At the same time, the uh, MVC framework has some extensibility points where it's possible, I think, to create some uh, controls or some helper attributes that will simplify the, uh, the, the well simplify the controller code when you're working with uh, CSLA objects. Um, but you know, whether that becomes a 3.6.1 or a 3.7, uh, that I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Who yeah. knows? But that that'll have to wait till um, after. Well, it'll have to wait till the MVC framework is you know shipping for one thing. Um, but it also uh, everything I'm doing right now with 3.6 is all synced to uh, the shipping of Silverlight. So um, we we were able, um, and, and this is in large part due to um, I, I've got one developer left on, on working on this with me. And so he put a lot of work last week into getting um, our beta one to come out on the same day that Microsoft released the release candidate for Silverlight. And I'm hoping to come close to that when Microsoft, uh, you know, releases, uh, does their release to manufacturing or release to web of Silverlight. I'm, I'm hoping to have CSLA out, if not on that day, you know, within a very short period of time afterwards. Well, that's cool, and of course we we don't really know RC zero. There may be an RC one, right? Oh, that's possible. Um, the the only real hint that we've got is on Scott Guthrie's blog. He made somebody asked a question uh, on his blog uh, about the ship and said, "Yeah, I, I know you can't tell me the dates, but um, you know we're planning on shipping our product in the middle of November." Um, and Scott's answer was that they should be safe. <laughs> so take take that for what it's worth but um certainly i'm i'll, I'll stick with that and say that i i'm going to try and plan on a mid-november too then <laughs> so um tell us about your tell us about the latest version of csli.net well like we've been talking about you know 3.6 
a lot of the focus has been on Silverlight, and well, I would say the you know the majority. But at the same time, uh, there's a whole bunch of other things that we wanted to do, or at least that I've been wanting to do, uh, that we managed to fit into this thing as well. Um, one of them, uh, and this is another colleague at Magenic that that did all the work here, um, Aaron Erickson, who's runs the I4O, the Indexing for Objects project, which is an open source deal for Link to do indexing uh, on objects. In CSLA 3.5, Aaron uh, built indexing into CSLA. So when you do a interesting, uh, when you do a Link query against the CSLA collection, if you want to, you can have it uh, use an index, which is useful if you're doing multiple queries against the same collection. Uh, because it's somewhere on the order of ten thousand times faster. <laughs> wow! It, it's I would say amazing. that's useful. That's good. Well, it, it certainly can be. Um, in the first run at it, though, the uh, index only supported equality, and so Aaron did a lot of work, and, and now uh, also we support greater than and less than operations uh, in your where clause. Um, that was a big deal. We ended up. Uh, for the first time ever, CSLA now took a dependency on a non-Microsoft thing uh, because we needed a, a balanced binary tree data structure. And there turns out to be a, uh, another open source project called C5 that's under the MIT license. And so we took a dependency on that um, in order to get at some of the, the data structures that are built into that library. That was a big deal. Now, why did you need to do that? Well, it turns out that writing a good balanced binary tree algorithm um, is difficult. And Aaron actually did write one, but it used recursion, and which is the way most of them work because you know, it's a tree, right? And recursion is a great technique. Sure. But then as soon as you throw... Um, you know, like a 10,000-item collection at it, uh, you end up with stack overflows because of the recursion. And so then you say, well, okay, we could go back through it, and there are patterns, you know, that you can use to unwrap recursion. Get a bigger stack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be nice. Um, it, it just, uh, you know, started to look like a, a pretty overwhelming task. And... Yeah, here's this other library um, with, with a compatible license uh, that you know, where somebody already did all of this work and, and from all accounts did a really nice job. So we said, well, you know, okay, let's let's uh, you know make use of that instead. And I'm pretty pretty happy with that. Although you can probably hear in my voice, you know, this I really resist taking dependencies because it comp or could complicate matters. Uh, in this case, we uh, merged the code directly into CSLA, and so it, I think it won't complicate things for anybody else except me. <laughs> so, uh, but the end result is really nice because now you can do um, you know, indexed queries greater than, less than, and equality, um, and still get this huge performance boost. So, I think it's a big deal. Yeah, that's cool. What, uh, what else is new in there? Uh, another big area um, is uh, on the data portal, um, and, and this will make the uh, test-driven development folks happy, or I hope it will. Um, the data portal now has an entirely alternative way of, uh, of operating, basically. The way that CSLA has, has worked for the past you know, eight or nine years has been where the data portal creates an instance of your object and then asks your object to load itself with data from the database or asks your object to save its data into the database. And it was really up to the business object to call the data access layer uh, to do that work. And that makes it pretty easy for people to um, kind of uh, break down the layer boundaries between the business object and the data access layer. And it also makes it reasonably difficult to uh, swap out the data access layer, um, although the, 
there are some great techniques for doing that, but um, you have to plan ahead, and a lot of people don't. And so this new model uses a an object factory scheme where the data portal does not create instances of your business object. Instead, it creates instances of a factory object that you write, and then your factory object is responsible for creating and interacting with the business object. And the this factory object uh, is created using a, a double layer of, of indirection, so it's completely pluggable. Um, a double layer of indirection. Oh, man, it's just, well, I, I happen to work with a guy who's really into this, you know, the test-driven, agile, all, all this stuff, and so he and I went back and forth a few times and, and ended up with a, a really nice, uh, I think, architecture where um, you can, prov- you basically, CSLA will create the factory following a default set of rules, but if you don't like my rules, you can implement your own factory loader. <laughs> and so ra- rather, you know, when, when uh, the data portal needs to create a factory, it'll ask you to give it back the factory. Right? And this is the double layer, I guess, is rather than just creating your factory directly, it'll create a factory factory. I wow. love that. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I love it even fun. more that Rocky Locker thinks that's a good idea. Factory factory. And worked hard to do it. I, well, it's, yeah, it's a big change. Um, and, and Wait a minute, honest, guys. I got a great idea. Let's make a factory, factory, factory. <laughs> let's 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 kick it up a notch. Now you're just talking silly talk. Why do you need a second layer of redirection like that? Have a factory, factory. Well, the before I answer that, let, let me say the reason that I did this originally is because I want to. I'm, I'm anticipating the kind of the the future of uh, things like the Entity Framework or N-Hibernate. And this, by having this external factory object, I believe it will make it easier um, to use things like the Entity Framework or, or other ORMs to create your business objects. Right. And so that was my original goal here um, and until my colleague uh, Nerman got involved and said, well, yeah, but if you just added this extra layer of indirection, this factory factory, <laughs> then you would then you would make the test driven development people happy and and the reason then for this is um it ultimately is mocking of the data access layer so if um, in the factory attribute you put the uh type of your factory that's that's the default behavior in c s l a so you say right. you know um you know, we need a customer object, and in order to get it, you should create this other object that's called a customer factory. And so the, the type name gets put into your code. Well, that's great, but what if you want to switch that out for unit testing to be the uh, customer test factory? Right? And so here's where having this factory loader or, or factory factory uh, becomes a big deal because for your t- you know, for production, it's probably all fine and you don't care. But for testing, you might swap out a um, the factory loader so that it interprets the type name different and always inserts the word test into the type name or something. I get it. And that way you could create a whole different um, fake or mock data access layer that just returns hard-coded values instead of really talking to the database. Right. That's smart. Oh, Boy, very cool. You're a clever guy, Rocky. Although I think you have some clever guys working with you, too. Well, exactly. I'm not taking all the credit for this by any stretch. I, I got a lot of great input on this deal. Well, in fact, I've had great input um, all the way through because I've been, where possible, we've been trying to do as many builds and, and put out pre-releases. And I think we probably did five or six pre-releases before the beta. And... So people, you know, not a lot of people, but you know, a handful of people downloaded those pre-releases and gave us bug reports, but even better, um, gave us you know, feature requests. For instance, we just reworked part of the data portal on the Silverlight side um, so that it is easy to plug in 
uh, compression algorithms on the server and the client because you know the sending XML over the wire can be really big really fast. Yeah, really quite inefficient, but shouldn't that be something... Uh, I guess, no, I mean, the web server could do it, but only on the downstream side. It's the upstream side that you're trying to battle here. So you've got to do it yourself. My original assumption was that we would be able to just let HTTP compression do all the work. Right. That turns out not to be true. Um, the, the WCF stack, or, or, and, and like you're saying, there are li- just limitations all around that make it not practical. And so we ended up um, opening up the architecture, I think, in some really great ways that makes it easy to um, plug in, if you've got a compression library that will run on Silverlight and .NET, uh, and there is one or two of them out there, um, now you can just plug that in and... Uh, you know, with any luck, compress your... And, you know, XML compresses really well. Oh, so, yeah. You know, you can take what would have been a huge blob of data and probably get it down to, a, you know, a couple hundred K or something. Lots of white space. <laughs> Lots of white space. Well, lots of repeating structures and things. I mean, yeah, XML is very repeat, repetitive in some ways, so there's all kinds of tokenization. Uh, sorry, I'm a compression geek. I apologize. <laughs> Go go with it. Go oh, yeah. It. He I'm, went there. I'm trying to be a better person, really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry if I get excited about compression algorithms. That's right. I went there. <laughs> and I think the, the um, back to the, you know, what new features and whatnot, um, probably the last major area that we did a lot of work um, is something that I've never spent a lot of time on in CSLA, which is um, authentication. The CSLA has had an authorization um, mechanism, you know, a lot of support for that for the past probably five years. But it's really just kind of always rested on top of the .NET principle um, concept. And really it's been up to you to build or create your own principle. Right. And... Uh, which has been possible, and you, know, you could use the membership services or Windows or all sorts of things. But when we started building the Silverlight side of things, um, Silverlight, number one, and then this puzzles me, it defines the principal interface, iPrincipal, but it doesn't actually have a hook for it. There's no place for you to hang the principal. Like, you can't put it on the thread, huh. which is what you do in .NET. Don't ask me, but there you go. So we ended up having to come up with our own place to store the principal. It does seem like it's unfinished then, doesn't it? Well, you know, it, I, I, no comment. Oh, nice, <laughs> thanks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but then on top of this, um, because you're running in Silverlight, Silverlight could run on the Mac. Right. Then there's no integration for things like Windows security. Yeah, Active Directory gets a little tricky now. And so we ended up writing our own infrastructure so that um, you can send a data portal request from the Silverlight client to the Windows application server and authenticate your Windows uh, credentials there and then return uh, uh, essentially a copy of what would have been the Windows principal. So you can still, essentially we're projecting your Windows groups or roles roles to the Silverlight client. If I was talking to Michelle LaRue Bustamante, their claims. Yeah, this is really not claims-based, though. It's no, no, this is, claims is now is a different thing, and these guys are a generation behind, I'm sure. We're, we're, yeah, and, and as long as .NET uses roles, then I'll continue to use roles. And when the core of .NET switches to claims, then I'll start working, you know, worrying about claims. <laughs> Well, and, and in the show we did with Michelle just a couple of weeks ago, she was talking about the fact that you're still testing uh, is in role. You know, you're, that, and that probably always will be the case because, in essence, a role is just a collection of claims. Yeah, that's true. And that's probably a healthy way to look at it. Yeah, it, um, it means we don't have to change what we've already got, which is the idea that, that our app, and I don't know that we're here yet with this, being able to say, here are the claims I require. That, I think, is very, it's very compelling, and it'd be interesting to see how that manifests itself in Silverlight, because now suddenly you're at the far end of this HTTP pipe trying to do authentication. Yeah, it's, it's, 
Well, what we ended up doing in CSLA is providing exactly the same model that you have uh, in Windows, in, in the .NET side. So, um, and then we came up with a scheme that makes it easy for you to uh, go create a principle based on your Windows identity, or and then we added another one that makes it trivial to go create a principle based on your membership identity if if your web server is using the membership provider. And then we also allow you to go create a custom one if you you know because some people keep all of their security information in a set of SQL tables, and so you need that you know kind of open ended custom model. And so we support all three of those. Right. But ultimately, um, it, it always, like you say, comes down to that is-in-roll call. Yeah, that's what it comes and, down to. And I've been telling people for years now to, uh, to treat is-in-roll, uh, mentally think of it as has permission. Yeah. Because I think that's a, a better um, mental way to think about this thing. Um, you know, do, you, do you have permission to load a form, or do you have permission to see this property or you know, whatever? Is the Silverlight implementation going to work the same way? The Silverlight implementation for authorization right. works exactly like the .NET implementation. So you're, you're, um, I guess to be very clear, you can write a business object, and probably 95% of your business object's code will be exactly the same on Silverlight as it is on .NET. At least within CSLA, wow, and that and that includes all of your authorization code for the object and for your properties. Now, what's a little bit different is your authentication code might be different um, from Windows to Silverlight, just because of the fact that that we're, um, you know, when you're running in Windows, like in WPF or in a web form, um, you have access to real Windows principles and things like that. And in our case, we're essentially projecting um, a fake principle, if you will, <laughs> out into the client. Um, but it looks like the real principle. It acts like the real principle. So I suppose if you, you know, uh, go with the whole, you know, like duck. Uh, it quacks duck like thing, a duck you know? and it walks like a duck. It's a duck! So, so in that regard, you, you, can, you literally can treat um, the Silverlight principle that we're creating like a .NET principle, and it will make you happy. That's cool. Rocky, we're coming down to the end of the show here. Is there any uh, any shout-outs you want to give? Well, I, really, I think primarily to the to the dev team that helped me build this thing, um, you know, Justin and Sergey and Nerman and Mark uh, and Sandy, uh, you know, the, the amount of effort that went into this, and, and not just effort, but... You know, really thoughtful. You know, everybody involved in this thing, um, you know, didn't just sit down and, and you know say, "Oh, I'm going to," you know, Rocky gave me a task, I'll go do it. You know, they they thought about the tasks and really put a lot of energy and and came back and you know with new and better ways to think about things. And is he politely so, saying they argued with him? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> We, That's we a good thing. I mean, passionate enough about what you were trying to do there to want to make it better. That's great. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely could not have asked for a better group of people to work with. So it's been a, a real pleasure. And um, and then, of course, there's all sorts of people, like I said, on the forums and, and in the CSLA community at large that uh, took the risk and the time to download and, and play with this stuff and, and provide feedback. And, yeah, that consistently for all the time I've been doing this, the, the thing that is, you know, and I, I've said this many times too, but it's so true is the, the CSLA community is just amazing. And, and the, um, you know, the amount of positive energy and the, and the way everybody helps each other and gives me good feedback um, you know, is really a, a wonderful thing. Well, hats off to you and your team and the community. And uh, congratulations on shipping the Silverlight version of CSLA.net. Thank you. And we will see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks, Rocky. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio 
audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC Yes, I'm a, a toy boy Life is hard